It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 1962 film Lolita. Once again, coming back to our Kubrick retrospective, this one, the sixth episode, and I guess the second part of our uh, 60s section of his retrospective, and Lolita. Yes, we've discussed this one a little bit, because we've discussed kind of the uh, the Hays Code and the Blacklist a little bit, and uh, when did you see this one? Good question. Again, it was around 2008 when I formally started my quest to watch every Kubrick film, and this was probably middle of the pack. Cause I didn't I didn't watch them in any particular order. Like I didn't watch them chronologically or anything like I just picked and choosed where I went. And so as I was going through his whole catalog over the course of three years or something, this was somewhere in the middle of that quest um, mm. of getting through all his movies. And part of the reason it wasn't one of the first is because by its simple nature, on its surface, like when you don't really know anything about it, it obviously is black and white. It obviously, if you don't know anything about it, you just think, oh, this is one of his older films. It seems like it's more a traditional Hollywood movie, like a melodrama or something, drama slash melodrama. So, you know, obviously things like Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket are more flashy and more known and more renowned. So I just assumed this would be, you know, more low-key, more straightforward, more quote-unquote traditional. So it, it just didn't have a, an appeal of, like, I want to jump on this one. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, so that's why it kind of fell into the middle of the pack. Yeah, and I felt a very similar way. The, the trailers, or not the trailers, the, uh, the covers for this. Yeah, there was nothing just very uh attractive about it it just looked like yeah like another one of his older movies maybe i i hadn't really heard much about it either it was just kind of just a part of the box set but that was about it yeah so i didn't see this until 2020 wow the the first time i watched this yeah fairly (laughs) fresh then for you in your mind Uh, yeah this is only my second viewing this viewing here and uh yeah i didn't really i didn't really know too much about the history i knew it came out still during the Hayes Code, so I was assuming that, again, Kubrick probably had a lot of issues, but I didn't realize about the book or the the previous, or I guess the the later adaptation with uh, Jeremy Irons. Mm -hmm. I understand that you watched that uh, in prep for this discussion. I did. Yeah, and I'd hoped to, but I never got around to it, and uh, 
Yeah, so I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, and at one point, I knew I wasn't going to read the book, but I wanted to read the book. Uh, this is a couple of years ago. Um, so I got the audiobook, and it's also read by Jeremy Irons. Um, huh. And I listened to the beginning of it a couple of years ago, and it was very interesting. And I, I still want to get through that, but I still haven't. I intend to, certainly, one day to get through the entire audiobook. Because, especially now that I've seen the, the 97 version, which by all accounts is much closer to the original narrative it's not 100 percent the original narrative but it's definitely steering more in that direction than the kubrick version um and so i now that i've seen that version i have an idea of what the original novel is like um mm. so now i just need to get this the straight unfiltered original version at some point in my head so i can compare all three yeah and i i also tried to uh i actually did it for this review i tried to go through that book Oh, I also picked up the audiobook with Jeremy Irons, and I got about two hours in, and I was just kind of like, this book, every time I pick it up, just makes me feel kind of icky. And I was like, ah, I've got other things I want to read, maybe I'll just put this on the, the back burner, I'll wait until our review. And then our review kind of came about haphazardly, so I never got around to finishing it. But, but definitely an uncomfortable read, the little bit that I did uh, listen to. I know what you mean as far as the icky, and I did sense that as well, but... It wasn't just that for me that made it difficult for me to get through the audiobook. It was th- a little bit of that, but also obviously it's like told like point of view, like autobiographically sort of. And and this person, the character whose voice we're hearing, you know, tell the story from his point of view, he's just so fixated and so preoccupied, not just on Lolita, but just his obsession in general that mm-hmm. yeah and part of that is icky but the other part is just like okay i get it mm. kind of like um bubba like we get it you love shrimp like i mean yeah. okay we can talk about shrimp but does every conversation have to be about shrimp so like the more times you hear jeremy iron's voice on the audiobook say nymphet nymphet yep Nymphet. I'm like, okay, I get it already. All right. <laughs> Besides the icky factor. <laughs> yeah, it was actually making me think of uh, Legion, the sequel to The Exorcist. Oh. It did just feel like, oh, is this book just going to be one person's like philosophizing for most of it? Yeah. And I don't like books like that necessarily. So I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> yeah. So that makes it a bit tiring too, aside from the icky factor. <laughs> like, is there anything else you think about? Um,. Okay, but um, yeah, and another interesting thing, even though I first saw it mm, circa 2010, who knows when, so I watched it that first time, and then I kind of shelved it in my mind, metaphorically, and then I watched it all the way through again a year or two ago, and and I, and, and I go, oh, I, I see a lot of things, because I didn't notice... The innuendo and double entendre. I noticed it the first viewing, but I didn't fully notice it. So when I watched mm. it again about two years ago, that's when I realized, oh shit, like, there is stuff sprinkled throughout the entire movie. It's not just at this one point or that point. It's throughout. And so that was only upon my second viewing that I discovered that. And then, aside from those two full viewings, there's times when I just watch 
bits and pieces of the movie, mostly from the beginning. Um, just because I kind of like just putting it on and just hearing the uh, how's the song go? The la 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 la, and they play it obviously in the beginning, but but also when he's like first moving into the house and you know and first seeing her and so i just put mm-hmm. that on every now and then la, 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 la. Uh, but i wouldn't watch it all the way through so this is actually i think only my third full viewing and as a result of i noticed plenty more details in the plot and other things on this third viewing that i completely missed on the first two um so yeah this is and this happens, you know, I know, this is what I, I skipped over the first thing I wanted to say in this conversation, which is I have been waiting for this moment, not because I'm so in love with the Lolita movie per se, but because this is where I think, and we mentioned at the end of the last episode, this is when Kubrick is Kubrick. This mm. is when the auteur really shows his face. There was flashes of it here and there in the previous films but this is like kubrick time and so like the other movies that are kubrick through and through you that that's part of the kubrick what's the word um i i'm not sure what the word is but it's the kubrick (laughs) fill in the blank where one of the elements of that is the constantly finding something else upon rewatch that you missed even if it's the 12th time you're watching 2001 you see something mm-hmm. else it's, it's it's also the same thing with the tarantino effect where you've seen i i watched pulp fiction the last time was maybe also two years ago i had seen that movie 50 times and the last time I watched it, I still found one or two minute things that I never noticed before, like minute details. And so, obviously, watching this for a third time, of course I'm going to see a lot of things I miss because this is this is real Kubrick. Yeah, and I, I think uh, the first time I watched this, for whatever reason, all this kind of Roman stuff and the mention of Spartacus... I didn't think about that as being self-aware the, the first time, just to kind of call out to the audience from his previous film. And I kind of wondered if that was a Peter Sellers just kind of, you know, just going off kind of thing, or if that was something that they worked out together. Because it's hard to tell with Peter Sellers. He just kind of does his own thing a lot of the time. You know, that's true. I kind of leaned towards it was more Kubrick, but that's just guessing on a whim, <laughs> you know? Because I could totally see it being Sellers as well. Or maybe... Because I don't know, maybe they were big time collaborators, maybe they discussed such things amongst themselves, and maybe it was a collaboration, I don't know. Yeah, and I I did try to read a little bit about their working relationship on this film, because being such a fan of uh, Dr. Strangelove, I know pretty well how they were working together on that film, and it really was Kubrick, like coming to Sellers, and Sellers being like, oh, I've got all these crazy ideas, and Kubrick kind of just kind of compressing and trying to make it all work together. And also just letting uh, sellers like shoot a bunch of different things. So who knows? Maybe this, maybe this kind of first scene, maybe they shot it a few times and sellers did it differently every time. Who knows? That's kind of the disappointment on this Blu-ray that I have. There was no special features whatsoever. I thought that was kind of shame. Well, that's the other thing about this movie. The entire Kubrick catalog, well, except 
saves fear and desire i'm not going to count that one um <laughs> but all the rest of the kubrick catalog have all received modern restorations i mean in the last five years or less they've all received hmm. modern 4k restorations except for lolita and eyes wide shut those are the only two left that need like a full redo and i am avidly awaiting both of those to happen yeah it is strange that this one has been kind of left out i wonder why well and that's another thing i was going to ask do you feel like this is yeah to be fair two years ago there was only one or two and so they just kind of <laughs> filled in the rest in the last couple of years so that's fair yeah, we got time <laughs> but before we really jump into the movie proper do you feel like this is maybe one of the ones that gets also kind of lumped aside with like his older works and doesn't really get talked about as much yes it's probably like something to compare to the beatles obviously we know there's their earlier work and their later work and most people start with sergeant peppers as like their turning point um but that is so unfair to both rubber soul and revolver because those were really the turning point compared to the early mm. stuff but people skip past them and i feel like that's what people do like this and um dr strangelove they're probably the rubber soul and the revolver and then 2001 is the sergeant pepper um mm. do not skip over not just listening but really seriously contemplating rubber soul and revolver because they are not the same as hard day's night help etc they are definitely like the true transitionary period of like the real authorship starting to come out in the Beatles work, AKA Kubrick's work. Yeah. And you can feel like a dramatic increase in confidence, especially as compared to Spartacus, which Spartacus, uh, I think just in terms of the length and some of the performances feels a little unwieldy. Like maybe he didn't have the full confidence to kind of call the shots necessarily, but this one, yes, it's a very particular vibe that you could only find in a Kubrick film. I think in a sense of humor, like I always enjoy Peter Sellers, but for whatever reason, his work with Kubrick, I feel like is some of his best work. And he, he's just hilarious in this movie at parts, but also like disturbing at parts. And I think that's really cool and works for him really well. Yeah, I never knew when I was younger that Peter Sellers was this character, as you say. I mean, as, as an artist, um, because when I was younger, I always just knew him as the guy who played the Pink Panther as just yep. like some goofy, quirky guy. Because obviously this is years before I ever saw Strange Love or Lolita. And then once I saw these things, and especially when I've revisited both of them in more recent years, he's more like a like a Jim Belushi before Jim Belushi. Like if you know anything about SNL and Jim Belushi, you know he's not just a funny guy. He is like a, a comedic performer who's like on another level like on another plane of existence yeah compared to everyone else like a, like an andy kaufman or something yeah i don't know about belushi but i definitely agree with peter sellers i i've never seen anyone like him belushi and someone like kaufman are like neurotic geniuses um or something <laughs> and and that's how peter sellers across comes across when you start taking him more seriously and seeing him in these more What's I don't know what the word is for this type of film. I don't want to say art house film or uh, whatever. That, that scene between him and James Mason at the hotel when he's pretending to be that police officer, whatever that is, 
there's an energy to that scene that I've I've never seen anywhere else. Like he's just such a fascinating performer in this movie, and then all the crazy stuff that he does in Doctor Strange Love. The guy the guy was just brilliant. But it's too bad that he kind of got uh, pigeonholed into making pretty simple and stupid comedies later in his career. But this period, super interesting stuff. Agree. Agree. <laughs> I don't know where to start with this movie. I don't know. You're going to have to prompt me next because there's so many. I don't know. There's too many. We can start anywhere. Yeah. And I was going to try to focus on the actors because I also think in terms of his earlier black and white stuff, it's also interesting to mention that he went back to black and white after working in color with uh, Spartacus. I know that uh, at least in the late 60s and early or early 60s and late 50s, it was kind of like, oh, if you're making more kind of... uh, harder edge dramas you go back to black and white but i don't know this one kind of plays as a comedy so it's interesting that he chose well one. i have a theory and it's probably not a unique theory but i haven't done all the homework like like a real film studies person would but my light theory that i haven't fully vetted but my inclination is to think that there's probably a lot of um, there's probably a lot of kinship that this movie has with the director's choice to go relatively low budget and black and white for the given material. I think there's something analogous with what was going on in his mind and intent with this movie. Hitchcock doing what he did with Psycho. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> and I think it's because, it partly like famously with Psycho, Everyone knows that partly it was because he wanted to do it quick. Um, He just wanted to get something out there. He relied on his television production stuff from his show to make the movie. But then also the black and white plays into perhaps some of the, I don't know if audacity is the right word, but the extremeness of the sudden violence Mm. and the blood and everything in the shower scene and how in every documentary they talk about how it, it almost seemed like too much like in color with like the blood and everything and everything and that somehow the black and white makes it more palatable um uh, literally and figuratively i think and i think there's something to that except this is obviously not a horror suspense this is more of a racy topic that exists more in the mind of the audience uh, an adult mind because if you're just a kid and you watch this you have no idea what's going on because you don't comprehend what's really going on mm. uh, in this movie um, and because it, it was such and everyone knew that the book already had such a reputation of being figuratively like a a rated X type of subject for a novel mm-hmm. uh, or by rated X I mean more like taboo um that so to dull down the again there's a better word than audacity but the because the audacity to bring this to the big screen you know it takes something and then how are you even going to translate it because before this movie was produced it's probably it was probably considered like what are some of those other famous productions that maybe something like lord of the rings or there's something else that where people said like this could never be brought to the screen. You know what I mean? Like there's no way to do it. Um, because you can't 
especially in 1962, you can't depict it exactly hewing to the original source material. But then if you play into the Hayes Code, does it lose its bite? So you have mm. to find this weird middle ground. And so that's why you know it was probably considered impossible. And so maybe by disguising it in black and white and as a more quote-unquote traditional seeming film, because this is post-Psycho, um, because in my mind, I always thought this was pre-Psycho uh, because it feels more like a 50s film than it feels mm. like a 60s film, even early 60s. But it's actually two years post-Psycho. But I think it's grounded in the 50s uh, aesthetic yeah, because that's another way to take the edge off, so to speak. Yeah, and it could be more just because uh, the book was written in the 50s. Maybe it was more trying to emulate that just to tie it into the book more. Yeah, probably too, because 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 what obviously we all know that this, the decade of the 60s was a time of radical change in music, fashion, politics, etc. So the next leap from this is something like The Graduate, where it's, I don't know if that's 68 or 69, when it's like, okay, now we can do this. Because now we're post-revolution, even though the revolution is still fresh. We're post-revolution, so now we can be in full color. Now we don't have to hide the the scandalousness of the content in The Graduate. We can just do it. Because now we're in the late 60s. But this is obviously pre-revolution, on the cusp of. Hmm. You know, obviously 62 was the year that... Um, or actually it wasn't the year, but it was almost the year that Kennedy was assassinated. And usually that's marked as the demarcation point of the end of the quote unquote Eisenhower era going into like the civil rights era. So this is like right on the cusp of that revolution. What I did want to mention, I, I love that they uh, were even advertising the film. Like, like they, they put right on the poster. How did they ever make a movie of Lolita? Like even they knew at the time, like, yeah, this thing, Oh, how are we yeah. ever going to do that? <laughs> So it's funny that they were using that as a way to sell the Absolutely. movie. Absolutely. And I also saw, curiously, I guess the studio was kind of scared of the movie, and so they really didn't do much advertisements. And this movie just kind of was fueled on word-of-mouth reviews and stuff like that. And there were lots of critics that were, like, inflammatory and, like, hateful towards the film. There were also ones that were yeah, raving it as, like, another great work by, by Kubrick. So, so already he was receiving those kind of mis mixed receptions based on his uh, prior career, which is interesting. But again, though, it's like if Ridley Scott had made Gladiator that, you know, got wide mainstream, you know, appeal and accolades. And then what if he had followed that up two years later with like some movie about like a transvestite hooker who was working in the inner city? And you'd just be like, whoa, how do we even market this? You know, <laughs> from the maker of Gladiator, you know, you're like, whoa. You know, it's like too jarring. I know I'm being hyperbolic with my comparison, but that's sort like that's sort of like what this is as a transition from Spartacus. Yeah, I never thought about it in that way. Yeah, Kubrick maybe wanting to move away from commercial stuff and like purposely put out something more provocative in that way. It's interesting. Oh, but how do you feel about the more provocative elements? Like, do you feel like this film still has the capability to shock an audience as it might have back then, or? Well, I don't know. I don't look at it as in that sense as the shock um, value in, in modern times, especially. I mean, looking back. Yeah. What I really more want to say 
is a continuation of the conversation we had before. And I don't know if it made it on the end of the episode or if it was off air when I was talking about the Hayes Code and I was saying that part of the brilliance of this movie is how it had to live within its constraints. And that's what, I, and I said, that's why the Hayes Code was maybe a good thing for certain works of art because it caused filmmakers to think outside of the box. It forced them. And I made the argument of like, when George Lucas made the original Star Wars, he was under the constraints of technology and budget. And, you know, and he always felt like, oh, but I never got to my true vision because of my constraints. But then you saw what happened when he had unlimited uh, resources and you get you get the Phantom Menace. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying the Phantom Menace is all bad. I'm just saying what happens when there's no one to tell you no. And so the Hayes Code is that thing that's telling you no whether you like it or not. And the other argument I have is like of what wow. like a sonnet is or iambic pentameter. The brilliance of the sonnet or the iambic pentameter with Shakespeare is yes, you could just tell the story straightforwardly in English, but the art is making it fit these parameters and following these almost arbitrary rules of stanzas and, you know, all that other stuff. And that's the art of the sonnet or the haiku, if you want to simplify it even more. So what can you do with limitations? And so that's why that's where I think the Hayes Code actually unintentionally serves certain works. And I think it serves this extremely. And to now further the conversation. So I watched, of course, the 97 Lolita version. And it is more a straightforward movie because it more closely resembles the novel and obviously there was no Hayes code to worry about in 97 so they could just be more straightforward and present things as they were presented in the novel which is fine but that's this is making my argument when you watch the new version it's like okay it's the same story it hits the same beats and we don't have to hide anymore so we can just they don't full on have intercourse on screen in the 97 version but you understand they are having sexual relations. Um, it's much more clear in the new version. Okay, fine. But now it just feels more like a standard movie, if you know what I mean. Well, I mean, I think I think it's an unfair comparison to some degree because we're talking about Kubrick, a uh, one-of-a-kind uh, kind of film artist. I don't know about uh, whoever directed the Lolita. Understood, understood. But... There's so much. You're right. Of course, that's a factor, but because they have to because they have to dance around the Hayes Code, you get all this crazy innuendo. I wish I wrote them down. You know what I mean? But just imagine if Kubrick tried to make A Clockwork Orange under the Hayes Code. I mean, there would be. And he even said a few years after this came out, he was like, "Oh yeah, if, if I'd understood all the limitations that I would have had, I never, I never would have made the movie." Because I, he felt like the impact of the book was lost in this version. So he was ultimately disappointed with what the effect of this movie was through the Hayes Code. I understand, but I also, I also liken that to somebody saying like, man, oh man, I think I just mailed it in with uh, Let It Be. Like, it could have been so much more. And like, I'm obviously making this up, but let's pretend Paul McCartney always lamented Let It Be. Like, he never thought it was that great. But... Do we care? No, it's a, it's, we either think it's an amazing song or we don't. 
whether he laments it or not. Well, um, I, I know there's a better, a real example of that on the tip of my mind. I think it is different, though, knowing the kind of stuff that Kubrick wanted to make, knowing what his career turned into and the kind of hard-hitting films that he did make, knowing that he ultimately felt like he was restricted and was disappointed with how this movie came out. Because of the censors, it makes you wonder what kind of film he would have made originally and what kind of quality work we could have gotten then. Okay, and that's a valid thought experiment, but regardless this movie is still there is still something so special about it and i get it it's kubrick but the way it dances around things without getting there oh man you know oh when i'm with you you just make me feel like uh she said something like a floppy noodle and he's just like yeah i know the feeling you know (laughs) (laughs) i can relate uh and it's just great and then like there's a scene, which is one of the ones I just noticed on the third viewing that I didn't notice before. They just got married, and they're in the bed together, and they're embracing, and they're holding each other close. And he's looking at the portrait of Lolita that is on her side of the bed. Yes. And he's staring at it, and you obviously know because of the dialogue and everything that he's tumescent. And then, as soon as she brings up her plans um, for Lolita... Mm-hmm going to a boarding school after the the summer camp or whatever and this and that and then she's like what happened like i can feel you're not here anymore and you know he's losing it and then this is the other part i didn't notice until the third viewing the art the artists are i don't know artisticness i don't know of so when he's looking over her shoulder on her side of the bed and he's admiring the portrait of Lolita and then she puts those words into his mind and starts souring everything and then they flip over to the other side of the bed and now he's looking at the gun Mm. and now he's having and it's I don't know what the word is for that type of because that's not just a Kubrick thing it's yeah it's throughout the golden age of film especially just that kind of what do you call that what do you call that um symbolism or it's not just it's more than symbolism but those types of nuances which i don't even know if that's the right word those things are rife throughout movies in the 40s 50s and perhaps 60s but are largely lost in in more modern films i mean there's still modern films that do that kind of thing but not like they did in the old days yeah, there's like a starkness to it. Like, yeah, I was going to say juxtaposition, but even that doesn't quite reach symbolic just because it, I don't know. It's it's like in, and now it's got out of hand, but it's like when someone explains The Force Awakens to you the first time, the scene where Kylo is facing off with Han Solo on that, on that walkway, and Han Solo is telling him, come on, Ben, you know, you know, like what happened to my son? And there's like a, there's like a, a light uh and a and a like a blue glow that's on his face and, and you can see like kylo's like oh yeah like i miss my dad and i miss my mom but then he's like i can't remember what he says but no but then you left and da, 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 da. and then and then like the light turns red and then it's that kind of thing i mean in a modern film but now they've done that too much the stupid disney series like they've played out that technique now but it was cool at first when they did it in Force Awakens. Uh, but whatever that's called, someone who is a real film bus, buff, uh, a film studies major, tell me what that's called. 
Yeah, whatever it's called, it, it works great in that scene. And I also wanted to point out um, just James Mason and uh, Shelley Winters. Mm -hmm. I think they just have such a such an interesting comparison to their energy on screen. Like she's so bubbly and she's got such a naive quality to her. And then he's just got this really creepy inward quality. And he masks it well, but you can always feel it. Just this kind of like a conniving energy to him. And I think in one of our other podcasts, I mentioned that I saw him in the 50s, A Star is Born. Mm -hmm. And the whole time I was watching it, I was like, why do I get this really weird vibe off him? Like, why, does I, why do I feel like this guy just has like creepy hidden motives? And then I realized, oh, wait, it's because he was in Lolita. So I don't know if it's just the actor, like he carries that. Or... Oh, no, it's not just that. <laughs> it's like, um, I just had this thought. Well, half of the thought I already had, the other half I just had right now. Um, what's the that famous actor's name? Or I don't care what his name is, but the actor in Casablanca, the one, the one who's like, "Hey, Rick, come on, Rick," you know, Peter Lorre. I need your help, Rick. Yeah, Peter Lorre, the man of a thousand faces. <laughs> okay, to me, you know how he has just the way he is, especially when he's playing that character in Casablanca. He just comes mm -hmm. off as this real skeevy, like. Stephen Buscemi, like before Steve Buscemi, um, <laughs> and, and it's just everything about him—his hair, his face, his voice—it just gives you this certain kind of feeling. And I feel like this is my new thought that um, James Mason is like the aristocratic version of Peter mm -hmm. Laurie, because <laughs> like, he's also skeevy and ugh, it just seems icky, but but. He's he's the aristocratic version, um, upper class, upper crust version of Peter Lorre playing that kind of character. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, James Mason, because Sean and I, oof, it's been over a year now. It's almost been two years since we, um, we covered his movie called, uh, oh, jeez, Louise, it was. Um, from 55 or 58 it's called uh bigger than it's called bigger than life from 1956 mm. and there's something about that movie like he's supposed to play this every man in a stereotypical 1950s um suburban home and he's supposed to be just like an american every man but because he's james mason and his voice it's just who is this guy like <laughs> like like he doesn't seem like, like like if James Mason was cast to play like Tim Allen in uh, what's his famous sitcom called? Uh, uh, oh, Home Improvement. Home Improvement. Like he's supposed to be the everyday suburban American dad. Oof. But if it was James Mason or James Mason type, you'd be like, something's not right about this, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's James Mason in a nutshell. It's yeah. <laughs> and he and he also does that would you say it counts as like a transatlantic accident oh i don't know i thought he was british but maybe he is british and i mean but that just lends to it because transatlantic you know was an artificial yeah artificially created movie language but it was supposed to be somewhere between america or american english and British English, it was supposed to be like this thing that's somewhere in between, like nebulous, and that's mm -hmm. kind of how you know he comes across, It's kind of nebulous like that. Um, it's kind of like when 
Andrew Garfield wasn't good at doing an American accent. <laughs> like, you feel like, well, even though he grew up in America, but you're like, something's not right about this. Like, I don't know what it is, but something weird's going on. Oh, was he not supposed to be British in this? I thought he was, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, in this. Yeah, but I was talking about the the, um, the other life. I mean, the other movie, Bigger Than Life. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure yeah. he's supposed to be European. Um, I'll, I'll confirm that if he's supposed to be English or something else. Yeah, and it's interesting that he was uh, 53 when he made this, and then Sue Lyon, who plays uh, Alita, was 14. Was she 14 at the time of shooting? Because I... Because when the movie came out, I think she would have been 16, but I didn't. I wasn't sure when they actually shot it. I think they said she was 15 once the before they concluded filming. She was 15 when they started. She was 14. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I was gonna say too. That's another thing that makes the movie even a little, a little bit more, even more odd per se, as compared to the novel. Because in the in the novel, his character is 37, and she well, she's 12. But um, yeah. But by making him 53, it makes it even more like, whoa. Um, not only with her, but even with him and her, and her mother. Because, you know, he even comes across as quite old for her as well. But but mm-hmm. to be fair, that was normal in a lot of 1950s movies anyways. Uh, I mean, that type of age difference. Uh, yeah. But I agree. They're all fantastic, the leads. Um, Don't Sleep on Shelley Winters. The first time I saw this movie, the first thing that jumped out at me, because I recognized her right away the first time, and of course, what I know her from uh, is the Poseidon Adventure. Since I was a kid, I always knew her yes. from the Poseidon Adventure, and it's just your first thought. Well, if you see this movie 15 years ago, you go, "Wow, she looks so young," like compared to Poseidon Adventure, mm-hmm. uh, and it feels like it feels like this movie came out 20 years before. Sign adventure, but then when you sit down and actually do the math, it's actually only been it's only like 10 years, yeah. uh, 10, 10 or 11, and you go, Holy crap! This is, goes back to our off air, um, before conversation mm. of how you can just age all of a sudden in 10 years. But to be fair, it, it's another thing, it's not just the years, but it's also when you do see actors make that transition from color or from black and white to color, that adds to it. Um, mm. And of, and also, of course, the styles that they're wearing in clothing and hair. So when you shift her to the seventies, to the nineteen seventies, I mean, she also put in. Uh, she also gained a substantial amount of weight in between that time too. But but I I was gonna say in my notes, let's just say gained weight. I don't want to say substantial, but um, <laughs> but yeah, she's forty two here, and it's. It's remarkable because she, in my opinion, she looks younger than forty-two. Yeah, I agree. Um, her character. Oh, that's funny. That goes back to like uh, she comes across as more like thirty-six, thirty-seven. Goes back to what? Yeah, it goes back to our earlier conversation as well. Catching her right on the cusp of the change. Yes, like she was delayed a few years, and then once it hit, yeah, it hit it hard. But I, I yes, I was, but I think it was a combo of her, her her biological age but also just how fashion changed so quickly um mm. i think lends something to that as well um and then yeah and then she's just 52 in the Poseidon adventure but man yeah a lot happens in that 10 years yeah and i was gonna say she's uh i've actually become quite a fan of her over the recent uh, year really because she's shown up in a whole bunch of retrospectives that i've done she's shown up in the disaster one 
my black exploitation fest that I was doing, she shows up in one called Cleopatra Jones, playing this great villain. She's absolutely hilarious in that. And then uh, the John Carpenter Elvis movie, she plays Elvis's mom. She's great in that. She's one of the standouts. So yeah, I've seen her a lot lately, and yeah, she's always good. So another good role for her here. Don't sleep on um, in the '97 version. She has much less screen time in that version. But her character mm. is portrayed by Melanie Griffith um, in that movie, and it's it's a very different take than this version. But it's it's still at its heart the same character for sure. And Melanie Griffith got a lot of praise, even though in that version um, the character of Charlotte it feels like she only has ten minutes of screen time in the '97 version. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's what it feels like. Because they dispatch with her quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about the uh, the Claire, Claire Quilty uh, character? Was he much in that? Because I know Kubrick kind of boosted that character more in the book. Oh no, no, no. He he was in it, but certainly far less. Um, I th- I want to say there's only perhaps two times when you really get a glance at him actually on screen, and he's actually played by Frank Langella. And oh wow, hmm. and. And while he's an elderly looking man, he looks so much younger in 97 than he does in, in the stuff that he did post 2000. Um, so you go, oh, wow, Frank Langella, a lot younger. But you only see him like really two times. Um, once it was, it was, or maybe the first time was when. Um, when he first take, picks up Lolita from the camp and then the first hotel, the resort hotel they stay in, I think that's the first time we see him in the 97 version. And all he is is like this man in the shadows in a suit. Um, mm. And he kind of looks like... <sighs> Did you ever see the TV series Airwolf? <laughs> yeah, yes, I have, yes. Do you know the guy who's like in the white suit and he has like the eye patch glasses? Mm, I don't know if I remember enough for that. He's like he's he's like the rich man who is like financing the operation with the Airwolf helicopter, and and he comes across almost. I was listening to our conversation on Metropolitan, and I was saying how I can imagine the anime version of those characters. Hmm. If you knew this guy from Airwolf. He is the real life embodiment embodiment of a certain type. He would be a Lupin character, like if he was an anime. Oh, interesting. But he's the but he's the whimsical like millionaire Elon Musk guy who's like financing the Airwolf operation, and he's wearing this. It's it's like a post leisure suit leisure suit, and it's like a white suit, and he wears like some type of fedora or something, and he has these glasses, but only one lens is blacked out. So it's like sort of like his quote unquote eye patch, and he's just like this. Imagine Elon Musk if if he looked like a a pimp in the seventies, like a disco pimp. Um, <laughs> and so that's what Quilty looks like is like this almost like Doctor Evil character in the shadows, except he's not wearing the Kim Jong Il outfit. He's wearing like a, a three piece suit. Um, and he's just kind of in the shadows, like watching and knowing what's going on with, with what he sees just with um, uh, um, 
what's his name? Um, Mason's character. Uh, yeah, Humbert. Humbert. <laughs> I think Humbert. Yeah, yeah. As he sees Humbert and Lolita together, he like he knows exactly what's going on. Like the first time he sees them. Mm. And was that creepy like lady with him in that version? No, no. I was very curious about her. <laughs> no, he's by himself. I believe he's by himself. And the other thing, like, so spoilers towards the end, I think, because again, I haven't actually read the full novel, but assuming that the 97 version is closer to the source material, so in this, when Humbert meets 17-year-old pregnant Lolita, you know, and he's like, what happened, and da-da-da-da, I want to know about the guy, the guy, you know, what happened with the guy that, you know, that you left me for? And she explains how it was quilty, and she went to that dude ranch in New was it New Mexico, um, and yep. how he had how he was a genius, and he had all these interesting people, and how he knew everything about art, and he had painters, and and all kinds of weirdos, not weirdos, but you know, like quote unquote beatnik stuff going on with like the the eccentric people he hung around with, with and he was like he was going to make these movies and he was going to cast her and like some art house film, wink, wink. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the way they explain it in this version. But in the 97 version, she's like, so, you know, I went to Quilty's place. He had this mansion. This is what she says in the 97 version. He took me to his mansion and I discovered that he just had all these other girls there. And I was just one, another girl to add, to the rest of them and he just wanted us to make smut films um and so she was like one day there was all these men and he wanted me to blow these five guys and i was just like like i obviously wasn't gonna do that so i just left and so it's like very straightforward he just wants to make like some type of sex films um Mm. and that she just refuses and leaves and that's it there's nothing about all this art or hollywood none of that it's just he wanted me to part be part of his harem like do this stuff on camera and she just didn't want to and left so straight to the point yeah and i don't know how much of a difference it makes i mean it's pretty clear in this version what she's talking about just like oh you wanted me to cooperate with all these guys and make these these art films oh that wasn't really my that wasn't really my point about that part, but my point was Quilty is this crazy renaissance man beat Nick in this version. Whereas in that, he's just a straightforward, smutty guy. Mm. And that's it. Like, there's there's no nuance. Like, you know, he's into the finer things of life or he's a great thinker. No, he's just, he's just <laughs> like a creep. He's like a straight... He's like... He's like the real life, quote unquote, real life version of Hugh Hefner. Hmm. Not a great party thrower, but just basically like a, a guy who works in the porn industry, basically. <laughs> you know, without all the glamour. Yeah, and this Quilty's real strange. He he also feels like a character they would only find in like a like a weird movie. Like he's not normal at all. From his creepy dressing up as a different. Uh, different character playing that weird doctor like oh we don't want to investigate your house and uh investigate what's happening in the home she's got to be in this play but then pretending to be the cop and then there's also that weird scene with him and that weird girl when they're talking to the guy at the hotel and it almost seems like he's 
maybe asking him to be involved in that threesome with them. I don't know if he got that, but that's what I got from their little exchange. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, not okay. A hundred percent. That was self-evident, but I was actually surprised that the couple at the, I want to say it's a high school dance, but maybe it's just a community dance. But remember like those two are like apparently swingers yep it seemed like that and yeah and and that's like it's one thing if it's quilty trying to get into threesome it's another thing if it's who just seem like two regular suburban like a regular suburban married couple but they want they're actually swingers and that seems pretty radical for 1962 and it's funny when i first played that scene i thought they were talking about lolita and i'm like they, they can't possibly be talking about lolita I, I gotta rewind this and i was like okay thank god no 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 well now we know what your mind was <laughs> I, I just must have misheard okay humbert jr <laughs> but i was definitely surprised at how like yeah, like this stuff's barely concealed in this movie i think like kubrick was going way out there and I did see that this got an X in the uh, the UK where they actually had a ratings board. So even for them, it was a step too far. But but I guess somehow it got by the the code. I don't know how it, how it got by. Maybe just Kubrick or the producers had some connections. But it does seem like it was really bucking the line. Yeah, for sure. But again, also, a lot of it was completely lost on me on the first viewing. Oh, interesting. I mean, I knew what the what the movie was really about, but it the first time I watched it. It felt vanilla to me at the time. Like, it didn't... Because I wasn't paying attention to the dialogue and the nuance and the innuendo, it just felt like... Like, I felt... On my first viewing that wasn't really serious, I felt like it was... It was, like, such a light touch. Like, it was barely a tip of the cap to what was really going on. That... That's why I didn't recognize the brilliance at all the first time. I was like, oh, it's a perfectly enjoyable movie. But it felt so tame to me because the nuance was lost on me. Because the wordplay was lost on me the first time. It just felt like a guy who had a really big crush. And that's really all they're going to give us. you know. But that's obviously not really true if you really take the movie seriously. Yeah, I also wanted to comment on one of the first times that we see Quilty after the uh, the opening we can discuss that opening a little bit um is that that dance and the mom comes over and she's like oh like remember when we did all this stuff together and then she like whispers in his, in his ear and we all know what they're talking about he was he was coming over and they were yeah, getting up to something but then the first thing he brings up once he remembers who she is he's like oh didn't you have that daughter lolita and it makes it even more creepy because it sounded like that was a while beforehand so she was probably even younger and this creepy dude's just had had her eye on her for that long like real creepy and the other weird thing that you don't really notice at first or i didn't um so obviously charlotte is is head over heels for him like really quickly that's obvious but yeah it actually happens with at least two other and maybe more lesser female characters in the movie who come later who, like like there's the one who overhears the argument when he's arguing with lolita after the play mm -hmm. and the lady at first comes over like um oh my gosh you know you need to calm down because you know da, 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 i've guessed that but then as their conversation continues oh why don't you come over and then and it's like 
it's like all these women want him um, or are interested in him. They come with one proposition, but then they have a second agenda. Uh, same thing happens with the um, the swinger couple. You know, the woman is trying to hint, you know, don't you want to, you know, would you like, you know, have a little of this? And then it also happens with, I don't know if she's the, I don't know what she is exactly, but the, the woman who is like, I don't know if she's producing or directing the play. Mm-hmm. The one who's talking about the piano lessons. And she's also like, oh my gosh, you know, your daughter's fantastic. Da, da, da. And maybe you could, do you play? You could play for my group, you know? And it's like, it's so weird how all these adult women, like, are all drawn to him. And he, just like he does with Charlotte, he just rebuffs everything that comes from it. It's just weird how they're all. You know what it's like? Yeah, he's got some sort of creepy uh, magnetism. No, no, no. It's like Eyes Wide Shut. Because that's one of the themes of Eyes Wide Shut. Is that there's all these different female characters who are throwing themselves in different ways at Tom Cruise's character. And he's constantly rebuffing. He almost gives in to one or two of them. But he's constantly rebuffing all these females. One is underage. Another one is of age but still extremely young and the other ones are older and the other one's a stripper and the other one's a pro interesting interesting but we'll save that for eyes wide shut (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's another one i've only seen uh once but i did want to comment a little on the uh comment on the relationship between uh charlotte and and him and how he just kind of i love that scene when she leaves the letter like oh don't come back because uh I'm sending you this letter about how much I, I love you and want to be with you and you shouldn't be there when I come back or else you'll show that you want to be with me. And he's just laughing the whole time because he realized he's got this this in the stay in Alita's life. Yes. Like, oh man. And because it's the, again, like, icky um, James Mason, just the way he's like, <laughs> and you're just like, oh, he's the worst. He's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, he's so terrible. He's so skeevy. He's so skeevy. Yeah. Oh, he's so disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the mornings, he's in there, like, writing his creepy little journals, and she's, like, knocking on the door, like, why are you always in there for so long? I feel all... And she's got her little shrine to her, her ex-husband. And... Oh, yeah, because uh, that dark humor element that, of course, Kubrick will be so yes. known for. Oh my god, the way he looks in his portrait and he's like staring and looks so judgmental and he's on top of that um, <laughs> that's like saint altar uh-huh. and it's just like everything about you all is wrong. Like uh-huh. everything in this house is immoral. Like, oh, it's so perfect. It's so it's so Kubrick and other filmmakers. I just love dark humor like that. It's It's like Again, when I watched it the first time, didn't pay attention. I was probably texting people or on or I was probably editing my MySpace page while I was watching it back then at the same time as I was watching the movie. But then you watch it now and when you're paying attention, when you're lucid, it feels like it's so over the top, but it's like hilarious at the same time. Yeah, and I think that's something that gets undersold with this movie. I, I don't hear people mentioning it much, is how funny the movie is. Oh, my God. Like, there's also that scene right after the mom kills herself and James Mason's sitting in the bathtub and these people come in 
I think it's that John and Jean. Yes. And then the dad of the guy who killed his wife comes in to apologize. He's like, oh, sorry to disturb you in your, in your bath. But I just wanted to come up and offer to pay for the funeral service. And then once James Mason's like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. The dad's face, like, falters for a second like he wasn't <laughs> expecting him to accept. <laughs> just oh, so subtle man, little... I guess it's not even subtle. That's a that's a pretty straight out there joke, but but it plays as subtle. I, I thought it was quite funny. Yeah. Another thing I noticed on third rewatch. So I used to always want to skip past the beginning, especially when I do those short watches. I'm talking mm. about how it does the whole "this is the end" at the beginning, whatever that's yeah. called. Um, and I always want to just skip past it and get to when he actually gets to the house. Um, because I just, I'm just like, ah, they're just going to have that banter. I don't need it. But when I actually paid attention, that thing is like one, one zinger after the other. Yep. And everything is, is like, he's like, so I can't remember what he says, Mason, at the beginning, because he says something like, well, why don't we, he says something like something to the effect of, what are we going to talk about before we start? And Quilty's like, before we start? As if this isn't the start? You know what I mean? Like, there's going to be extra? You know? Mm-hmm. And then he's like, come on, you know, they're at the ping pong table. And he's like, I ping you. And then, you know, he just doesn't do anything. And he's like, come on, I ping you pong. And he does it again. And he doesn't do anything. And then he does it a third time. But then that time, Mason bats it back, except it just goes off the table. But... The whole scene is like an entendre, uh, a metaphor within a metaphor, like every bit of dialogue, everything that happens. You already mentioned the Spartacus line, but there's... And so I realized, why am I skipping this? This mm-hmm. this, is, this is like fantastic. All of it. I, can't, I just can't remember all the other bits that he's talking about. That everything, the whole entire sequence is just... like It's... I was gonna say it's Kubrickian, but it's it's like Tarantino-esque as well. Whereas, even everything that seems benign is more than it appears. Yeah, and I feel like I get that with a lot of Peter, Peter Sellers' performances, where I feel like I almost can't keep up with him. He's so quick with all of his jokes that they just almost fly past me, and I have to watch them a few times before I fully get them all. Yes. And yeah, I, he's he he steals the show in in most of the scenes that he's in. I, and you could feel Kubrick like kind of falling in love with his uh his energy i feel like that's why he's such a giant presence in the next film but definitely a standout in this one and and i also didn't even know he was in this when i first watched this it was a big surprise for me to to see him showing up oh yeah yeah absolutely same for me because i had seen strange love before this um oh it's that guy again oh okay all right here we go yeah and also a surprise was uh seeing lois maxwell show up did not remember that she was in this. And let me tell you what's even more ridiculous. So when I was watching it today, you know, I completely forgot she was in the movie. And she appeared, except I misidentified her. And instead of thinking, oh, there's Lois Maxwell, you know what thought came into my head? Oh, who? <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, it's Majel Barrett. Oh, my God, she's playing, like, another nurse, like... I could see like it pre um, nurse chapel, and I was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe there's a Star Trek connection!" And then I was like, "You know, how old was she?" So I was looking up 
Nurse Chapel, Majel Barrett. And I was like, how come I don't see Lolita on her IMDb? And so then I went to the um, Lolita IMDb, and then that's when I saw it was Lois Maxwell. And I was like, wait a second. Oh, shit, it's Miss Money, Penny. Oh, my God. I had it all turned upside down. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny, too. Uh, in that same scene, we get one of the Felix Sliders playing the doctor that she uh, that they call up. Oh. I can't remember if he was the one from Thunderball or... I can't remember which one he's from, actually. Maybe I'll quickly look. Dr. Kegi, I think he was. Which I noted because it sounded like Dr. Kegel. Because I, I definitely know what the Live and Let Die Felix looks like, who's also in um, Living Daylight. Or License to Kill, I think. But License to Kill, you're right. Oh, Goldfinger. There you go. Uh. Yeah, one of the lesser lesser Felix Lighters. But still, fun to see him show up in this. Oh, and I guess I didn't think about it, but this would have been the same year as... Uh, Doctor No, right? 62? That I did, yes. That I did have in mind. Once I realized who it really was. Because I was like, oh, she's going to do Star Trek in a mere four years. And I'm like, oh. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what do you think about them opening up the film with that murder? I mean, it, it kind of right off the bat introduces like, hey, this 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 Peter Sellers character is one to keep an eye on. I think we've discussed this with other films or television that generally we don't like that yeah but i don't know how much i like it at the beginning but i know it certainly wouldn't work if it was at the end no absolutely <laughs> yeah that's me so the end works so much better because then it just like goes to the mansion the end mm-hmm. and that's that's so that so taking that into consideration what else are you going to do with that brilliant scene other than put the beginning i don't think it could work any other way yeah, and because this one doesn't open up like the novel, just focus on creepy journal entries, it's kind of like, oh, how did this this man, James Mason, kind of a figure of old Hollywood, how did he come to this point where he's going to murder this man in cold blood? Yes. I think it works. Now, that makes sense, what you, what you just said. That's the obvious reason to do it the way it was done. The other part, though, so on the one hand, watching it this time where I'm paying more attention... Because we have that opening scene, then it, it's like so obvious whenever you see Quilty, or they mention his name first before you see him, you know, oh, and, and Quilty is going to be there. You know, he was here, you know, a couple of years ago and he spoke to my book club or whatever. And he's fantastic. And he's going to be at the dance. So you already hear the name Quilty because it kind of sticks out. But then you obviously recognize him right away because the way he's dancing, like at the <laughs> dance you know which is really cool by the way and um and and because you saw that opening shot you already recognize his face and then you recognize him again when he's playing the cop and the psychologist or whatever he was and so when you're paying attention it spoils the um the masquerade but that being said counterpoint when i was watching the movie and not fully paying attention i never realized that that was him um like as the cop and the psychologist because i wasn't paying attention so it's always like do you have to hold the audience's hand or don't you is what i'm trying to say Hmm. because if you're really paying attention like i said it ruins the masquerade but if you're just joe schmo just watching the latest picture show then you do have to, you know, emphasize it or they'll be completely lost on them. So, you know, 
cuts both ways. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting. I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't relate, though. I definitely, I think Peter Sellers is just, he's always got my eye anytime he's on screen, anything I've ever seen him in. So I think. But you could argue that he almost s- steals the show to the point of being a distraction um, in this particular version, in this particular movie. Mm, I did wonder that. Yeah, for people who read the book, what would they think? Because I knew that this part was kind of beefed up by Kubrick. He like, kind of fixated on that, reading the book. Exactly, exactly. And I could see how that could annoy the purists. Um, you know, what the heck? It's almost like uh, Arwen in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's quilty. <laughs> I don't even know if I remember that character. Oh, boy. No, or, what do you mean? Um, um, Strider's love interest. The one who calls... Oh, oh yeah, her. The water. Yeah, so she was like you know, barely mentioned in the original text, but then she she's like a fully formed like participant like in the trilogy. Oh interesting. I didn't realize. Hmm. Yeah, so that's why that's what I'm saying. She's like the quilty of Lord of the Rings. I think that character is always I I find it the most forgettable. So I just forget that she's there. <laughs> well she's even more forgettable if you only read the books. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that is interesting because I don't know if the uh did the the newer version did it have such a comedic element running through it because i do feel like after the mom there there was still some quips um mainly by uh i was gonna say mason humbert so jeremy irons still has some quips here and there some innuendos Hmm. but far fewer um far far fewer than the Kubrick version. And I believe that the original author added a lot of this black comedy into the uh, into the dialogue of the novel. But I'll just have to take somebody else's mm. word for it. So that wasn't strictly like a Kubrick invention to do that. It was, to some degree, it was there in the original text. Like, for instance, oh, cool. one thing I read was that so you know his initials are HH, and some people take that as an inside joke from the author because um, I guess the way H is pronounced in German is Ha, so it's like his name is Ha Ha, and mm. that's like a little inside joke. Um, so stuff like that, supposedly, like in the original novel. Um, okay, so maybe this is more in tone than than I would have guessed. Mm. But even like the little inclusion of that little song, like it's almost like yeah, like a child's tune. It's this kind of light bit of humor to it. Yeah, and the 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 ninety seven version has none of that. Also, the ninety seven version takes place in the period as it was written in the novel, which means it takes place um, pre Korean War, um, post World War Two, like forty seven ish, basically is when the novel and the 97 version take place. Whereas this oh, okay. is more or less, I guess, to contemporary 62. Uh, some other, I guess, interesting thoughts or from readings I was doing earlier. So there's a lot of debate over whether you're considering the novel or the movie version some people believe because 
the way it's written and the way it's presented is we're getting this all from from reading like Humbert's memoirs and he's trying to say yeah I get it I had a relationship with an underage girl but hear me out you know what I mean hear me out like it's not like I attempted to commit statutory rape you know I was just enthralled with her nymphette form but who was I to stop her when she came to me ultimately that there was a mutual attraction and she embraced me first and she kissed me first you know what I mean? This isn't just me. It, it was it was mutual, you know, to hear mm-hmm. him tell the story. And so the, the, the debate is, is everything in the novel or movie completely fiction a la, a la, what's the movie called? The Usual Suspects. Is this mm. an incredibly unreliable account of the author that... Let's, so one theory is he just outright groomed her from the very beginning and all he intended was basically to commit statutory rape and he's a, he's a horrible human being but he's just trying to by spinning his fiction or his take on things he's trying to paint himself as a sympathetic um, I don't want to say hero but you know what I mean a victim yeah yeah so there's that take that some people think, no, this is all, com- you cannot trust anything in this movie, that nothing necessarily happened in any way the way we see it or the way we hear it told. There's some people who subscribe to that because the, he's just this sociopath or narcissist who's just trying to paint a rosy version of events. But then there's other people who think that even though he's the narrator and we just have to take his word for it some people think that he is giving a sincere depiction of what really happened and so some people take it as if he's trying his best to represent the truth and there's just a lot of debate about that because there's people who say whether it's betrayed in the book or in the movie like for instance i think in both the book and the movie or this version of the movie the first night that they stay in the resort after he picks her up <laughs> he sleeps on the cot first and he you know keeps himself separate from her and it's not until the morning after she wakes up that they had this conversation and then it's depicted as if Lolita is the one who's who initiates the sexual contact in in the 97 novel it's a little bit different I mean, 97 movie, it's a little bit different. But in this version and supposedly the original novel, that's what happens. They have a chase night together, and then they cross the Rubicon, so to speak, that morning. And again, it's depicted as Lolita initiated it physically. Um, But then, so so that's if you take it as read. But people who subscribe to this whole thing's a fiction say, no, that's bullshit. He probably just got her in the room and just had his way with her like that's what really happened mm. but he's not gonna say that he's gonna say that he slept on the cot and you know kept his distance and lolita came to him and she said do you want to play this game and da 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 and some people say that's all bullshit 
that's just him trying to re- retell history and that he just took her and probably just had his way with her. That's what really happened, but he's not going to say that. So what do you think about those two opposing views? And people are very firmly in their camps. There's not much middle ground. Mm, I, From what I read of the book, I could definitely see that working more in that reading. This one, I feel like his point of view in terms of the, the writing in his journals or whatever is a little bit of narration. I feel like that's so brief in the movie that it, it couldn't really be... Well, that was just one example I chose. That's fair. So in other words... So in other words, the people who believe he's telling the truth as best he can think that he's more or less giving a reliable account, whereas the others think this whole thing from start to finish is a charade of what really happened. Like, he presents it as, you know, I took her wherever she wanted, and I took her to school, and yes, maybe I smothered her, but I still let her do... But other people think, no, she was basically a sex slave in captivity the entire time and this old man was just having his way with this underage helpless person like from start to finish but he just paints it as i had her best interest in mind i tried to entertain her you see Mm -hmm. well i think the movie portrays him negatively enough that that wouldn't fully work i mean he does present himself as like oh i think i'm yeah i'm doing all this for you and i i take care of all your needs but i just I need you to not be around anyone else but me, and you, you have to meet all my needs too. And so I, and she acts like like he's smothering her, which he is. So I feel like if he was presenting himself as like this victim, and it was all her coming on to him, and he couldn't help it, I feel like the movie doesn't quite live up to that uh, point of view. I think, especially in the later half, like like when she leaves him. I mean, he was pretty obsessive, and he like strangles Lois Maxwell begging to find out where she went like he he doesn't look uh it's not a great portrayal of him in this movie if that's your uh, reading and speaking of some things you just brought up so again going back to that first viewing i had where i wasn't fully invested in the the viewing experience it took me by surprise when she came up missing at the hospital and i know there was already the suspicious car but i wasn't sure if that was like a psycho situation where I can't remember her name in psycho, but like she's, you know, she's ultra paranoid during that sequence when she's driving to Phoenix and she thinks there's a car following her. Oh, it's, Oh, it's kind of like Goodfellas. Like, is there a chopper? Isn't there a chopper? You know? And so I kind of thought maybe he was just having like that type of moment. Like, you know, when he felt that someone was following him and da 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 da. And so then when we get to the part where she comes up missing in the, in the in the hospital, I was I was thrown for a loop the first time because I wasn't paying attention. Because I didn't know, like, did someone kidnap her? Is there a guy even more skeevy who, like, took advantage of her? Like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Like, because I knew she was unhappy, but I still thought she would stay with him despite her unhappiness. So it, like, completely got me by surprise the first time. But that's because I missed all the hints. Because one of the very first hints, which I just saw for, noticed for the first time on my third viewing, was so when they had that argument after the play. And see, now that I'm paying attention, I realized that Quilty was, it was his, I didn't realize it was his play and that he was even there backstage mm-hmm. and everything. Followed him there. And so then, so they had that argument in the house and the other neighbor comes by 
and you know they're chatting in the doorway and then Lydia's like alright see you later and she just pops out right and he's like oh crap because he's trying to end the conversation so he can pursue her and so when he finally does get to pursue her she made a phone call right and see at first I would have thought oh she's calling her friends because she wants to go to that hangout or whatever it was but upon third viewing no that's her calling Quilty because she, if you pay attention, you realize even before that scene, she actually wants to get to Quilty. And you realize that Lolita is already trying to plot her escape much earlier than I originally realized. So that was actually a Quilty call. And then you realize Quilty was probably like, all right, this is what you got to do. Just go along. Play nice. He'll take you wherever you want. Go here. And, and then I'll follow you. I didn't realize until my third viewing that Lolita knew who it was the whole time. And et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I get for not paying attention. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, he is a creepy dude. Even creepier than our lead, who's also a creepy fuck. Like that quilty guy is a, a real bastard. <laughs> well, there's that element, but there's also the element, again, that, again, Lolita's not... 100% victim that it's going to sound weird because I don't usually use these words. No, no, no. <laughs> no, these next buzzwords I'm about to spew. It's when you pay attention to the movie and the story, Lolita actually has some agency in the situation because it's not just Quilty, but how she outfoxes Humbert herself. You know, that's, that's, that's easy to overlook is what I'm trying to say. Is, is how she helps to orchestrate her own escape. Yeah, but this is a kid with, like, basically your only options after your mom's dead, after your dad's dead, are these two creeps. <laughs> you can go with this. Understood. Creepy, Understood. Creepy, sexually assaulting dude, or this one. Understood. <laughs> Understood. But it's still easy to overlook that she does have some agency considering the hand that she's been dealt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely she does. And she, you can see her playing um, Humbert as well to try to because she can see his his weaknesses and how much of a pathetic little bitch he is she knows how to, to push him around but you can only do so much when he gets like ultra controlling like he gets later on in the movie now here's another big topic for discussion that i have been thinking about from the moment that you said we're gonna do lolita <laughs> or that i knew that that was coming i'm gonna reveal the topic but i'm even still hesitant to show my full hand and I'll explain why. Similarly to when I first watched the series Dexter on Showtime. And initially I just watched the first episode. Are you familiar with the show? Nope. Never seen an episode. So to explain the premise simply, and you get this right from the opening of the first episode. Um, Dexter is probably a sociopath and... He starts, you know, he, there's a lot of self-narration right from the beginning that since he was a little boy, he knew this about himself, that he's not like everyone else and that he has to pretend or act like a regular person in order to get along because otherwise people just see him as like a non-feeling robot, you know, automaton without emotion. So he masquerades as a person for instance in like the opening episode he talks about like um uh 
um, like I, I'm, I don't remember. It's been years, but I'll, so let me just try to manufacture a memory. So it's something like, like he, it's portraying Dexter being young, and he has a sister, and she's quote unquote normal. And and Dexter will will speak his inner dialogue, and he'll be like, "Oh, there's my sister. Why does she look so happy? Oh yeah, today's her birthday. I don't really want to acknowledge it, but that would be weird." So I'll pretend, oh, hey, sis, happy birthday. Like, oh, thanks. Da, 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 da. And he's like, oh, what would a person do in this moment? Oh, I should embrace her. Oh, here you go. You know, so like you get that's what Dexter's character is, right? Like he's just mm-hmm. masquerading as a quote unquote normal person. And so then he's always had this fascination with wanting to kill creatures, you know, started with animals, but then. He was really fascinated, and so he he got into um, forensic science, you know, so that he could, you know, do um, autopsies and whatnot, you know, so that he could kind of do it, you know, without people thinking he's a weirdo. I mean, a real weirdo. <laughs> but then he wants to go out and kill, actually kill people himself, but obviously that would be bad morally not that he has morals but he recognizes that so eventually he comes up with this idea of what if i kill people who should be killed anyway like people who deserve criminal punishment i mean not criminal punishment capital punishment so that's how he justifies it i'll be able to kill people but i'll only kill bad people like i won't kill innocent people um okay all right so that's kind of like this is all like in the first episode and so i'm watching it going wow i really connect with this character and see this is why i don't want to say too much because i don't want people to think that i want to go out murdering people um but like i i get it i get the thought process i understand the inner dialogue of the character i'm not a sociopath myself you just have to take my word for it but (laughs) I can relate to this. And so just like when I read Sherlock Holmes and when Sherlock Holmes has his inner dialogue on how he solves things and da 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 da, it made me think, man, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle must have a real insight into this type of being on the spectrum or something. You know, he must be writing some of himself into the Sherlock character in order to get to be able to be to get into his head so well. He has, there has to be some of him, right, in this character. Mm-hmm. So then I was thinking, whoever wrote Dexter, he must have, like, a really deep understanding of this, of, like, putting on a mask. Because I feel like I'm relating to it as well. So let's get to Lolita. Similar to everything I've just been saying about Sherlock and Dexter, when we hear Humbert explain and rationalize and blah, 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 I think there's actually some truth And what I mean by truth, there is psychology and scholarly literature to back up what's going on with the Sherlock character, the fictional Sherlock character, or the Dexter character, or the Humbert character, I believe. In other words, there is some play with some real psychology going on. These authors know what they're talking about. Do you feel like there's anything in Humbert's psychology from the author's voice that is ringing true with some type of 
biological, psychological truth out there. Mm, maybe not from this movie. Let me just say one more thing, because there's something from the 97 movie that, that adds to this mm. that's not in this movie. So the the opening of the 97 movie is Jeremy Irons' character, Humbert, reminiscing on when he was a little boy, or when he was a younger boy, mm. uh, or a boy. And he talks about, when I was young, you know, I love being a boy, and my family used to go on trips and holidays, and everything was great. Mm -hmm. And then one time, when he was, I don't remember if he says he was 12 or if he says he was 14, but he says, when I was 12 or 14, we went on holiday to this place for the summer, and I met this girl who was my age. Her name was Annabelle. And this is in the novel, too. Yep. And, you know, I just had this summer with Annabelle, and, you know, she was amazing, and she was so perfect. You know, this 14-year-old or whatever, 12, whatever she was, and it was amazing. And then, you know, we left, we went back home, and, like, I never saw her again or whatever. But, but I, you know, I never loved anyone like I did Annabelle. And later, I think he marries someone else, like, when he gets older, when he becomes an adult. And he had like an okay marriage with her and I can't remember if she died or what happened or they just got divorced. And even though it was, the marriage was okay, like adult women just don't do it for him. And he, he's implying in the movie that it's because this vision of Annabelle was so imprinted on him when he was that age mm -hmm. that just nothing else can do it for him like that. So then of course when he sees and meets Lolita she completely rekindles that in him because he's seeing as if Annabelle was suspended in time and his heart has always yearned for that perfect idyllic image literally and figuratively of Annabelle so he sees that in Lolita and that you know that's how he's sort of justifying you know what's happening mm -hmm. so do you think that this thing is speaking not just Humbert's per truth so to speak but some type of real truth that is out there for a segment of humans or men yeah and or some latent thoughts in the author i didn't do a deep dive on the author himself but some people believe that he may have had an incident of childhood trauma himself that perhaps lended to this that's a lot of people's theories like something with his uncle or something when he was young mm. I, like, I didn't do a deep dive on it so do you think there's something there that there is some type of human truth even if it is something so uncouth as the subject matter is yeah and this I, I also feel uncomfortable showing the uh or really going out there with this one but but yeah I mean that comes down to people who have these kind of pedophilic desires in the first place I mean <laughs> hold on because you just said the p word the vape, the vape went down the wrong pipe I think it's Hebophiliac or something when it's like they're on the cusp of puberty but they're not fully developed whatever that is whatever difference that is but I was going to say I, for those people uh, in a certain way I mean yeah I, I feel bad for them because I mean you got to assume that the reason that they're programmed that way it's not like they're choosing it's not like a normal person chooses to feel that way it's clearly something that they just feel and they can't help it you got to assume it came from either some sort of abuse situation coming on some sort of kind of corruption of the sexual development 
and a lot of people just jump right to condemning and especially people who act on it, I understand that impulse like just being completely repelled by those people who act on that stuff but uh, I come from a place as very liberal kind of a progressive person from a place of empathy I just feel bad and wish that there was less stigma for those people seeking help because I feel like most people who have those kind of issues would never want to go to someone to seek help because they would immediately be like fear of people being disgusted by them or something like that and there's got to be a way to help those people Right. But also, furthermore, so if we pretend this was based off of actual real characters or like real people, or let's pretend this was almost like a based on a true story, let's let's just say, not only would you assume that the real Humbert had some traumatic event, even if it was just emotionally traumatic, mm-hmm. he had some event in his youth, but furthermore you would assume if these were real people that Lolita had something in her past. Mm, absolutely. That lended to how to her own proclivities. So it's it's not just one or the other. It's it's both. Um yeah, that's that serves these characters if you treat them as actual real people. Yeah. But of course in terms of consent, she wouldn't be you know, of course it's all on him to be the one to not pursue anything, but but definitely understood it, understood but definitely in in the mom too the mom clearly seems like she has some sort of stunted development issues and she's putting it onto her daughter yep she says the same thing she says the same thing when she's when she's lamenting over the ashes of her husband i, I forget his name um do you remember his name uh <laughs> she calls him mr hayes Mr. Hayes, you know, <laughs> why'd you have to leave me, Mr. Hayes? Why'd you have to leave me? I was only a child when you left. I didn't know how to take care of myself. I didn't know how to raise mm. a, a daughter. I didn't know how to, you know, provide for myself and everything. And so, yeah, you're, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And hold on. We all know how, um, how tra- trauma is, can be transferred generationally, etc. Mm-hmm. Mr. Hayes, is that his name, Mr. Hayes? Um, yeah. I think he was a lot older than Mrs. Hayes. Oh, yeah. So this could be a bit of history repeating itself. Mm, I didn't think about that. That's interesting. When we have episode one, The Phantom Menace, um, you see Natalie Portman's like 14 and Anakin's like nine, except Mr. Hayes is like this boy who is 25 and he's grooming this 11-year-old because they grew up in the same neighborhood and da-da-da-da. Fast forward, then we get to the original trilogy, which is Lolita. And now <laughs> she's passing on the trauma of her relationship and she's passing it on now to her daughter when this um, yeah. Humbert character comes into the picture. Yeah, and the mom clearly is attracted to shady dudes because she was also bringing that other guy in the picture, a Quilty bring him in the house and he's got the eyes for her yes and it it explains too yes it explains too how she has an attraction for him for both of the men mrs hayes says oh my god this is reminding me of another movie what is it um where there was another mrs hayes like character who also because she herself is going for older men obviously even if if the age difference is not quite the same well, I'm not sure. <laughs> ah, it'll come to me like two more episodes from now, and I'll bring it up. 
But yeah, definitely a lot going on, and I, I kind of wish, because I do remember that piece in the book, yeah, him kind of talking about where this fixation began. I kind of wish that was in this movie. It would add a little bit more of an extra layer, but maybe... That's not Kubrick's way, though. You know, and again, I've never read the novel The Shining, but I imagine, or even the work that, um, well, you could take 2001, you could take Clockwork Orange. I haven't read any of those original source materials, but if you know Kubrick, you know he's going to, like, put his stamp on whatever it is, and he's going to completely excise some things because he chooses to. Like, for instance, in the epilogue, and by the epilogue I just mean the on-screen text at the end of the movie, it just says that Quilty died in 1950 or whatever year, or two years later or whatever, um, awaiting trial for the murder of Mrs. Hayes. And then that's it, the end. But in the 97 version, which I assume is also like the novel, yes, it says that about Humbert, but then it follows it with... Lolita died on such and such date during childbirth. So she actually mm-hmm. dies when she gives birth to the pregnancy that she's carrying in the story. Oh, wow. But Kubrick deliberately did not mention that, you know? So he deliberately only mentioned Humbert and didn't say anything about Lolita. Yeah, that's an interesting scene to, to discuss. The scene where he comes back to Lolita and she's pregnant looking for money. I actually thought that was a strangely sweet <laughs> scene. Oh, yes. This is weird. Yes. And that is one of the... Po- oh, it's sweet until he turns into the yeah, fucking... The blubbering little pathetic yeah, little baby. Oh, God. That is <laughs> that is so bad. I mean, for his character. <laughs> yes. But um, but this is another element in that argument about people who say it's an accurate depiction versus it's all a farce. Mm. So what they pull out of that scene is that... Because, oh, because people argue... Is it strictly a lustful, domineering relationship, like rape victim being abused by her captor versus a mutual love or any type of true love, whether it's Mm -hmm. on either side or or mutual? So they look at that scene, the the scene where he visits her when she's pregnant. And um, so the argument is that I guess this is in the book that Humbert states that you know he has this attraction for nymphs as he calls them and that his intention is he will hook up with Lolita he will have his fling with her but he expects that she will age out at a it sounds weird to say it like that but he expects anticipates that she will age out at around 1617 so he he says he in his mind he thinks he has a good three years with her and then she'll be too old and then he thinks he's just gonna leave her and then move on with his life and that's what his plan is initially so then it comes down to that final scene because he hasn't seen her for a spell she's now 17 and and i don't know if this is in the book or not but there's a question of when he sees her Will she now just look like an aged out 17 year old and now he'll lose his sexual attraction as he previously expected? Or, and what ends up happening in the book and I think the different movie versions, well, especially, well, it's a little bit weird in this one since it's been altered, as we've said, from the source material. But 
what ends up happening, I believe, in the book and in the 97 version, when he sees her, oh, it's in this version as well, when he sees her pregnant, and even though he knows that she's obviously now married this other man, she's carrying his seed or baby, so to speak, not, well, not his baby. Yeah. <laughs> and he discovers, what does he discover? He is still madly in love with her. And some people make that as the argument that, no, yes, these are his legitimate feelings. Because it turns out he did have real love, even though it's twisted. Um, that he actually did have, whether it's right or wrong, he had a genuine love for this young girl. And it turns out that he still wanted to be with her post-nymphette phase. Nymphette Oh, so everything I'm saying right now feels horrible, but um, I know. <laughs> and so th- now this is like his own inner redemption. Oh my god, I really do love her. It's not just that she was underage, and that that's supposed to be some type of inner redemption for those who believe that Humbert is giving as true an account as he can, versus he's just a lustful rapist. Well, yeah, and his twisted kind of view of love, which is much more just an obsession. And that's why I think it's interesting that immediately after that, he's like, oh, like, is this husband of yours the season one that stole you from me? Oh, he wasn't? Oh, okay, I've got nothing against him, but the guy who really stole you stole my obsession into a murder. See, so it was just a healthy, like, oh, I realized I, I passed that, you know, I still love her as this woman. Maybe he could find some peace and move on, but he still just has to fulfill his weird obsession and desires to possess her in some way and, and punish the man who who took away his possession which is an interesting interesting wrinkle to him i think at the end there especially if they're at the, after that breakdown it feels like he could move on at that moment it's strange that he continues on to go murder the guy i was wondering what your thoughts are on that part but mm, that's a good question what are my thoughts on what exactly well, it seems like like he's had like quite a bit of distance from her. She's now nine months pregnant. She's married to someone else. He doesn't even seem to have anything against that guy. Like he still wants to have her, but it's not like he's gonna kill that dude. Right, right. But even after she's rejected and yeah, it's not really part of this movie that he still has the attraction to her older self. They don't really bring that up. But just the kind of accepting that she's moved on and he's already even made preparations for her to like have ownership of her old house and everything he's kind of set her up to be a little more stable but then he still goes on and kind of has to close the chapter of this book for him and go kill Coolty. just kind of interesting so i guess just in his twisted world his twisted worldview he may have done some immoral things in his mind because again he's he's the what he said like the sympathetic victim yeah uh well at least from his point of view um, so yes, so I guess what Humbert would say is, okay, fine. Maybe I was, maybe I did some immoral things. Maybe I did take a bit of advantage of this younger person. But Quilty was even more immoral than me, hmm. and I deserve my justice. Maybe I don't deserve to end up with Lolita in the end and live happily ever after. Okay, I can accept that in my twisted morality but i'm still owed a pound of flesh because uh, it's obvious in whichever version you're watching that he is being a bit delusional (laughs) definitely 
uh, I mean that that he's still owed his pound of flesh. That he's that I may not have got the big prize, but I still get like the what's it called the uh, consolatory prize? Um, yeah, not consolatory. Like that consolation. Consolation. Con- yeah. Uh, and so I still have to write this injustice. Be- oh, be- oh, here's the part. I, I got lost for a second. Because, and this is the part where he's delusional. Because he thinks that if not for Quilty, he and Lolita could have continued on with their with his fantasy. Hmm. But Quilty was the one solely responsible. And he, and he ignores that Lolita, he ignores Lolita's quote-unquote agency, where yes, she, she admits she had this prior love and that her actual biggest crush was on Quilty, not on Humbert. She liked him too, but but she still wasn't ever his first choice. Even though she liked him as well. It was really Quilty. But even if there was no Quilty, he ignores the fact that she does she probably never would have settled for him anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's not because he's older. It's just because I don't know how else to say this. She's just promiscuously minded. Well, and that's just the way it is. And she's trying to admit that to him while simultaneously admitting that Quilty was her number one. But she's also trying to say that I'm just, that's just who I am. I want variety. But see, this is. Well, I don't think it was just that necessarily. I mean, but the delu- well, you can explain that in a second. But the delusional part is that he just glosses right over that. And is he still yeah. falsely believes that it's solely Quilty that disrupted his fantasy? Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say it was also just he was smothering her by being so controlling, wouldn't let her do anything because he was terrified of any other person and meaning anything to her. Wouldn't let her go to the play. Wouldn't let her. Well, and you're absolutely right, and that's also depicting anyone, anyone who becomes controlling because of their insecurity. And remember, he is being Mrs. Hayes. Hmm. He, he, except he's doubling down and doesn't, again, doesn't self-reflect. Because in the relationship with the mother, with the mother, Humbert was the Lolita. Because she was infatuated with him with her older man fantasy, which was her proclivity. What's the word for that? Like, uh, uh, I don't know. Jerry file? Oh, <laughs> he was not geriatric. <laughs> so, but still, that's her proclivity, as we established. She's a geriophile. <laughs> so, the way she looks at Humbert from the get go is she's her, he is her manfet, and she looks at him, she can only see him through lustful eyes as an object. And he's repulsed by it, and he's kind of and like ew, and I don't, I don't want to reciprocate, and and so he's actually the lead, the lolito, at the beginning, and then he is plotting and scheming. Hmm, should I kill her? No, I don't. I don't I'm not that kind of person. Um, but, oh, that scene. But how can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? You know, because I want to be with Lolita, not with her mom. So once mom's out of the picture, and you're you would think as an audience member coming into us for the first time, like Humbert, all I gotta do is get rid of the mom, and I can have 
the oyster is mine. The world is my oyster. But then as soon as that happens, you realize, no, it's not so because, because Lolita, like her mother, has eyes on this other guy. I mean, not like her mother, like Humbert. Humbert had his eyes on Lolita while being taxed by Mrs. Hayes. Mm. And now Lolita is being taxed by Humbert when she has eyes for Quilty. And so now Lolita, if we had, and supposedly there was a version of the book that was written by a different author years later, I think maybe a, a female author, I'm not sure, but there was a book that came out decades later that was, I can't remember what the book is called, but it's the same story, but it's written from Lolita's point of view. And so we mm. get Lolita's inner dialogue. And so you can imagine that version of the story where she's like, oh man, Humbert again. Oh, oh why does he got to be so smothering? Oh, I just got to get to Quilty. How can I do this? You know, and she's probably having her own thoughts. Can I kill him? No, I can't kill him. So, oh man, you know, what can I do? Um, you know, see, I. Uh, this is this feels masturbatory, but um, or the opposite of self-flagellation. But I gotta thank you because I feel like these thoughts that I've just spoken, because this has come to me in real time. This stuff about real like comparing and contrasting Hayes Humbert, um, Lolita Quilty. This has just made the whole story so much more interesting to me from an artistic mm. point of view, and this has all just come to me in real time during this discussion and now i'm kind of like fascinated by this and i'm going to, have to reflect on this later <laughs> hey that's why i love going through these movies yeah there's so much room for conversation well this is by far the deepest dive we've gone on any of the kubrick's thus far yeah and i think it's suited to the material agree i think there's definitely those those first two much more simple and then yeah the killing and then has a glory and spartacus i feel like they were all more just kind of straight stories with some extra layers but not as deep as this one goes and some of the other ones goes oh my god so look forward to many more yeah long deep conversations with these books i honestly because for literally every kubrick that follows this one it's going to be a bottomless pit of exploration (laughs) definitely a lot with no real right or wrong answers it's just there's there's just so much in every single film to come man i can't wait to get to them especially the next one my favorite film of all time dr strange love or how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb absolutely love that film i don't know what i'm gonna say about it but i'm gonna try not to just jump into quoting lines from it over and over again because me neither because i've i've never done a proper i've discussed it with friends before but never like a proper podcast yeah, very excited to see how that goes. And I'm hoping I can rope Isaac into seeing it because I've been trying to get him to watch it for years and it's never never worked out. So we may potentially have a guest in that one. But it's also the kind of thing, whether it's Isaac or someone else, they're either going to see something in it or they're just going to see almost nothing in it. Or just or or what I mean is not see nothing, but it's just not for them. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah, I'm curious what Isaac would think of that one. So I might, I might see if I can bring him in. And I'm, I'm hoping to get Sean in for uh, The Shining as well. At least those two. But, but anyway, do you feel like you have any uh, final thoughts on this one? I think those are the big ones. The ones that happen spontaneously. Uh, I mean, not spontaneously, but um, organically in the conversation. Hmm. Um, 
Um, I mean, because I like to rate things, I would, man, I'm, I would give it. A, oh God, it's so hard now with all of these that remain, because yeah, because I'm such a diehard Kubrick guy. How could I give any of his films remaining less than four and a half? <laughs> I feel like I only have two choices for all the movies left, which is either four and a half or five. Those are my only choices. Um, because honestly, there's not a film remaining. I can say this right now that, that I'm going to give less than a four and a half. <sighs> four and a half. Uh, oh, fuck. Yeah, I'll say for me on my second viewing only uh, four and a half, but it could easily be a five on my next viewing. Like, I, this is definitely one that I've. I really liked it the first doing like it even more now. <laughs> so, and after this conversation, I feel like yeah, it's definitely helped elevate it. Now I'm going to upgrade my fear. I think I'm going to give everything a 5. <laughs> From this point onward, everything because I can justify it. Even though I can still rank them, you know what I mean? Like I could still do a power rank, power rankings of the remaining films. Mm-hmm. It's because it's like this one's this one's a 5.1, this one's a 5.2, this one's a 5.0. That's that's mm. that's what we're going to I'm going to start doing that now. <laughs> so this is like a 5.0. <laughs> um on the on the this is okay, this is the new Kubrick scale I have to use for just Kubrick and certain other filmmakers. I can only give it anything between a 5.0 and a 5.9 from this point going forward. Interesting. All that definitely change of things so i'm gonna i'm I'm gonna give this a 5.0 see you can take off the point and so i'm just gonna get everything a five but if you want me to actually power rank these things this is gonna be it might even be a 5.1 now that i think about it um this is gonna be a 5.1 on the 5.0 to 5.9 scale for me shit well if we're expanding the scale then yes this is definitely a five for me (laughs) I'll boost it up. I, well, there's no other way I'll be able to grade the rest of the movies because they're all fives. So this is I'm using, this is the one time I've never done this before, ever. <laughs> this is a 5.1 on the Kubrick scale. Yep, and, and fair enough, this movie really is great. Um, again, I, I feel like it's one that's just going to get better and better each time I see it. They all do. I mean, even the, the ones that we've done already get better when I watch them. But from this point onwards... The increment of betterness, this sounds stupid, um, <laughs> is just greater with these true Kubrick films. Um, um, true to the name. Yeah, full form. Fully fully formed artists. No more... Uh... I can't think of any Kubrick film, including the, the early ones. I can't think of any Kubrick film that has diminished with multiple viewings for me. I don't know that that exists. <laughs> Yeah, even Fear and Desire stayed in the same place for me, both viewings I saw. Yeah, yes. It Okay, so no Kubrick film ever diminishes for me. The only thing that can happen is my power rankings can change, but nothing, mm. like the order I'd place them in, but, but nothing diminishes, though. That's fair. Oh, but thanks a lot for this, this very fun conversation. I can't wait to get to the next ones, but yeah, definitely. Now I just want to rewatch this movie. So there you yeah, go. I literally didn't know how it was going to turn out, like where we would go until it actually happened. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very, that's how I feel about the next one and 2001. I feel like I don't know where I'm going to go with that one either, but I guess we'll find out. 
Absolutely. Oh, but um, <laughs> yeah, thanks again, everybody, for listening, and hopefully you're following along with these movies, and follow us on the next one. Peace.